0: Aisha the la ilaha illallahu, wa ahdha the wa wa Bismillah the name of Allah, the Ar Merciful, the Ahead in the
1: Hazrat Khalifa Masih the 5th, ayyadahullah ta'ala bin as he stated, I was speaking on the life of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and mentioning incidents that took place immediately after the Battle of Badr. In this respect, one of the significant incidents that took place in the second year after Hijrah is the establishment of the graveyard in Medina, Jannatul Baqi. And the details of the establishment of Janatul Baki are as follows. It is said that when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, settled in Medina, there were many graveyards at the time. The Jews had their own graveyards, and likewise various Arab tribes had their own graveyards. And since Medina was divided into various areas at that time, therefore every tribe would bury the deceased in the open fields of their respective areas. Quba had its own graveyard, which was the most well-known, although there were several other smaller graveyards there as well. The tribe of Banu Zafar had its own graveyard, as did the tribe of Banu Salama. Other graveyards, including the graveyard of Banu Saida, where later the Suq nabi was established. And on the land where Masjid Nabwi was built, there were also some graves of idolaters among the date orchards. And among all of these graveyards, Bakiul-Gharkad was the oldest and most well-known graveyard. And after the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, selected it as the graveyard for the Muslims, it acquired a unique and distinct status which shall always remain. Hazrat, Hazrat Ubaidullah bin Nabi Rafi relates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him was in search for a place where only Muslims would be buried. And for this purpose, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him inspected various places. And this honour was however destined for Baqiul gharkad The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him stated that I have been commanded to select this place, i.e. Baqi'ul and during that time it was also known as Baqiul There were countless Ghargad trees and shrubs and it was filled with mosquitoes and other insects. And it is said that whenever mosquitoes would populate in this area due to the filth or it being a jungle, it would seem like a cloud of smoke had covered the entire area. The first person to be buried there was Hazrat, Hazrat Usman bin Mazoon, And The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, placed a stone by his side as an indication and said, He is our predecessor. Whenever someone then passed away after him, people would ask the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, where to bury them. And upon this, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, would say that bury him in Baqi near our predecessor, Usman bin Maz'oon. In Arabic, Baqi is referred to a place filled with many trees, where there are lots of trees. But in any case, in Medina, this place started to be known as Baqi ul gharkad Since it was filled with many Ghirkat trees, just as I mentioned earlier. Aside from this, there were many desert shrubs as well, and it is called Jannatul Baqi. The meaning of Jannat in Arabic is garden or paradise. As such, it is known as Jannatul Baqi amongst most non Arab visitors. Abdul Hamid Qadri Sahib has recorded these various details, and following this, he says that we should not forget that Arabs generally call their graveyards Jannat. Another name of this graveyard is Maqabir al Baqi, which was more commonly known among the Bedouins. With regards to this, Hazrat Mizza Bashir Ahmad Sahib has mentioned in Seerat Khatam al i.e. the Life and Character of the Seal of Prophets, as follows To the end of this year, i.e. 2 Hijri, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, proposed the creation of a graveyard in Medina for his companions, which was referred to as Jannatul Baqi. And after its creation, the companions were generally buried in this very graveyard and the first companion to be buried in this graveyard was Usman bin Maz'oon ta'ala anhu. Usman ta'ala anhu, was from among the most pioneer Muslims and was extremely righteous and pious. He was a man of ascetic disposition and on one occasion after becoming a Muslim he submitted to the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that if the Holy Prophet peace be upon him kindly grants permission, it is my desire to abandon the world completely and separate myself from my wife and children, so that I may devote my life wholly to the worship of Allah. However, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, did not permit him to do so. As a matter of fact, even with respect to such people who would not abandon the world completely, but would fast and offer salat so often that it would affect the rights of their dependents, Regarding them, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, would say that you should offer the right owed to God, and you should offer the rights owed to your wives and children, and you should offer the rights owed to guests, and you should offer the right owed to your own soul. For all of these rights have been appointed by God, and the fulfilment of them is also a form of worship. Therefore, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, did not permit Usman bin Maz'oon ta'ala anhu, to abandon the world, and whilst prohibiting celibacy and asceticism in Islam, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, established a middle course for his community, which is set between two extremes. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was deeply saddened upon the demise of Usman bin Mazun, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, And there is a narration that after his demise, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, kissed his forehead. And at the time, there were tears in the eyes of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. After his burial, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, fixed a stone at the head of his grave to serve as a marking. And then, every so often, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, would visit Jannatul Baqi and pray for him. Usman bin Mazoon was the first Muhajir to pass away in Medina. I shall now mention the expedition of Ziamr, Amr, which is also known as the expedition of Banu Ghatfan. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, received news that the Banu Salaba and Banu Mahari branches of the Ghatfan tribe had gathered at a place called Zi Amr. And this is a village in the vicinity of Ghatfan. And their objective was to attack the neighbouring areas of the city of Medina and to get them to join them. And the individual who was inciting them against the Muslims was Dosur bin Haris of Banu-Maharib. And so, as soon as he received the news, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, instructed the people to prepare and thus he departed Medina with an army of 450 companions and some horses as well. The Holy Prophet, Usman peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, assigned Hazrat Usman bin Affan radiallahu ta'ala anhu, as his deputy in Medina. The expedition of Ghatfan took place in Rabiul awwal 3 Hijri, And the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, set forth for this expedition on 12th Rabiul Awal. The people of Medina had to bear his absence for 11 days. And then on 24th Rabiul Awal, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, returned to Medina. And the area where the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, set up camp in order to gather intelligence about Ghatfan was a place near Ghatfan called the Amr. And for this reason, the expedition is called the Expedition of Ziamr Amr and it is also referred to as the Expedition of Banu Ghatfan with reference to it being against the tribe of Ghatfan. It is recorded in relation to the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him setting off to combat the assembling of the idolaters that after departing from Medina the companions met a person of Banu Salba at Zul Qasa. Qasa was situated 14 miles from Medina towards Rabazah. The person was called Jabbar and the companions captured him and inquired as to where he was heading, to which he replied that I wish to go to Yasrib in search of some livelihood. And so he was taken to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He informed the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, about the situation of his people and after the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, invited him to Islam, he at once became a Muslim. When he became aware of the intentions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and that he was heading to fight against Banu Salba and Banu Muharib, he said to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that, O Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, they will never face you in combat. If they find out about your arrival, they will flee immediately to the mountaintops. They wanted to attack the outskirts of Medina, but they would never come to face to face with the Muslims. And so he said that I will also accompany you. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, placed Jabar under the supervision of Bilal. This person took the Muslims via another route and reached their area. When the people there saw the Muslim army approaching, they all fled to the mountains. The Holy Prophet, Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him advanced and reaching a spring called Zee Amr, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, set up camp there. All of a sudden, heavy rain began to fall there, causing the clothes of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and his companions to become wet. And so the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, placed his wet clothes to dry on a tree and also lay beneath that tree. The other companions were occupied in their own work and this is where an evil attempt to kill the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was made. It is written in relation to the person in this incident who drew his sword. It is said that those who hid in the mountaintops were seeing all the movements of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, up above from the mountains. And so when the idolaters saw the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, lying down in one place all alone, they went to their chief Dosur, who was the most courageous of them all. The idolaters said to him, that right now the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is lying down all alone. And it is now your duty to deal with him. In another narration, it is recorded that when Dosur saw the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, lying down alone, he said, "That may Allah destroy me if I do not kill Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him." In any case, Dosur went forth with his sword drawn towards the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him but stopped as he reached right where his head lay. He then addressed the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, saying that who will save you from my hand today? Or perhaps he said that who will save you now? The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, replied in full confidence that Allah will protect me. Upon this, the person fell to the ground and his sword fell from his hand. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, immediately picked up his sword and asked him that who will now save you from me? In reply, Dosur said that is, no one will, that no one will be able to save me, and I bear witness that there is no God except Allah, and Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is his messenger. And by Allah, I shall never incite people against you again. This was the promise that he made. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, granted him his sword back. And according to another narration, Dosul turned towards the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and said, By Allah, you are far greater than me in bestowing a favor. Upon this, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, replied, That is, it is more behoving of me to do a favour. Dosur returned to his people, but he had changed so much that he began to preach to his people. Dosur then related this incident of what happened to him and how he felt, And whilst narrating this incident of falling down, Dosur stated that I saw a tall person there, when I was standing there with my sword drawn, he says that I saw a very tall person come there and he pushed my chest and I fell on my back. He hit him with his hand and he fell on his back. And he then said that it was then that I realised that this was no human but rather an angel. It is then that I accepted there that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad wasallam is the messenger of Allah. He said that by Allah, I will never act against him again. Thereafter, he began to call his people towards Islam, and through him, Allah the Almighty guided many people. In any case, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, returned to Medina after this, and no battle took place. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, spent a total of 11 days away from Medina and according to one saying, he remained outside of Medina for 15 days. Abu Umar states that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, spent the entire month of Safar in Najd. But in any case, there are various narrations about this, but in actuality the journey was only for a few days. Some of the scholars have deemed that this particular incident i.e., the attempt on the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him,'s life by the sword, took place during the Battle of Zatur Riqa. And in doing so, they have declared the two incidents to be one and the same. However, most researchers consider these two incidents to have occurred during different battles. The name of the individual who attacked during the Battle of Zatur Riqa has also been reported to be Ghoras, and it is said that he accepted Islam. While there are some of the opinion that he did not accept Islam, albeit he did make a vow with the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, to never fight against Islam. This is also a narration from Bukhari. Another incident that took place during this time period is the demise of Hazrat Ruqayyah, and the marriage of Hazrat Umm Kulsoom. The details of these incidents have been narrated by Abdullah bin Munkif bin Harissa Ansari. He narrates that when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, departed for the battle of Badr, he left his daughter Hazrat Ruqayya in the care of Hazrat Usman. She was ill at the time and passed away on the same day that Hazrat Zaid bin Harsa arrived in Medina with glad tidings of the victory Allah the Almighty had granted to the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him at Badr. The Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him designated a share from the spoils of Badr for Hazrat Usman and his share was equal to the share of those who partook in the battle. After the demise of Hazrat Ruqayya. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, married his other daughter, Hazrat Umm Kulsum, to Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Hazrat Abu Huraira narrates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, met Hazrat Usman by the mosque door and stated that, O oh, Usman, this is Jibrail. he has informed me that Allah the Almighty has decreed your marriage with Umm Kulsum with the same value of dowry as Ruqayya and upon your kind treatment towards her. In other words, Allah the Almighty said that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, should also marry his other daughter to Hazrat Usman <laughs> with the same value of dowry <laughs> given to Ruqayya.
2: <laughs>
1: Hazrat Aisha narrates, <laughs> That when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, married Umm Kulsoom to Hazrat Usman, he said to Hazrat Umm Aiman, that prepare my daughter Umm Kulsoom and then take her to Usman's home and beat the drum before him. And so she did as she was instructed. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, visited Hazrat Umm Kulsoom three days later and said to her, that, O oh, my beloved daughter, how do you find your husband? Upon this Umm Kulsoom replied, that he is an excellent husband. Hazrat Umm Kulsoom remained with Hazrat Usman until 9 Hijri, after which she fell ill and passed away. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, led her funeral prayer and sat by her grave for a while. Hazrat Anas narrates that I saw the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him with tears in his eyes as he sat by Hazrat Umm Kulsoom's grave. In a narration of Bukhari, this incident is recorded in the following manner. Hilal narrates that Hazrat Anas bin Malik stated that we were attending the funeral prayers of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him,'s daughter, and I saw that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was sitting by his daughter's grave with tears flowing from his eyes. In another narration, it is recorded that upon the demise of Hazrat Umm the Holy Prophet (peace be upon him) stated that if I had a third daughter, I would also marry her to Usman. Hazrat Ibn Abbas narrates that the Holy Prophet (peace be upon him) passed by a place and saw Hazrat Usman sitting there, crying in sorrow of the demise of the Holy Prophet (peace be upon him)'s daughter, Hazrat Umm Kulsum. The narrator of this tradition further states that the Holy Prophet peace be upon him was accompanied by his two companions Hazrat Abu Bakr and Hazrat Umar The Holy Prophet peace be upon him inquired O Usman, why do you cry? Hazrat Usman replied that O Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him I am crying on account of my relation to you as your son-in-law has now come to an end. Both your daughters were married to me and they have both passed away and now I am no longer your son-in-law. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, stated, that do not cry. I swear by him to whom my life belongs, if I had a hundred daughters and each passed away one at a time, I would marry each and every one of them to you, one after the other, until not a single one of them remained. In any case, this was a mutual expression of love from both sides. On the one hand, Hazrat Usman was saddened that his relation as a son-in-law had finished and, on the other hand, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, compassionately consoled him and he reassured him that he should not grieve for he was still closely related to him. Hazrat Mizza Bashir Ahmad Sahib mentions this marriage in his book Life and Character of the Seal of Prophets in the following manner. He writes, After the demise of Ruqayyah, the daughter of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and wife of Hazrat Usman bin Affan, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, gave another daughter named Umm Kulthum, who was older than Hazrat Fatima, but younger than Ruqayyah, to Hazrat Usman in marriage. And it is for this reason that Hazrat Usman is known as Zunurain, i.e. the possessor of two lights. And this was the second marriage of Umm Kulsum, because in the beginning her sister Ruqayyah and her were married to the two sons of Abu Lahab, the paternal uncle of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. However, before their Rustana could be held, this relation was severed on the basis of religious opposition. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, gave his daughter Ruqayyah to Hazrat Usman in marriage first and then after her demise, married off Um Umm Kulsoom to him as well. It is unfortunate, however, that the progeny of both these daughters did not continue. Um Umm Kulsoom did not have any children at all, and the son of Rukaiya, whose name was Abdullah, passed away at the age of six. And the marriage of Um Umm Kulsoom took place in Rabiul Awal, 3 Hijri. Another incident that is reported to have taken place during this period is the Battle of Bohran. Aside from being called the Battle of Bohran, it is also referred to as the Battle of Furu and the Battle of Banu Suleim. Bahran is a mineral vine in the valley of Furu that belonged to the people of Hijaz, and the valley of Furu is located 96 miles from Medina. The Holy Prophet, Peace and Blessings of Allah be upon him, received news that a large number from the Banu Sulaim had gathered in Bahrain. And so, the Holy Prophet, Peace and Blessings of Allah be upon him, appointed Hazrat Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum, or according to another narration, Hazrat Umar as his deputy in Medina, and departed towards Bahran with 300 companions.
2: The Holy Prophet,
1: peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, did not initially express the reason for this expedition. However, when the Muslim army was just a night's nice journey away from Bahran, a man from the Banu Sulaim met the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and informed him that the people had dispersed. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, handed over that man into the custody of a companion and continued the journey until they reached Bahran. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, did not find anyone there, because they had left in search for water and thus the holy prophet peace be upon him returned and no battle occurred the holy prophet peace be upon him departed for this expedition from medina on 6 jamadi ul ula and after 10 nights journey he returned on 16 jamadi ul ula Contrary to this, Ibn Ishaq states that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, set out to intercept the trade caravan of the Quraysh when he arrived in Bahran, a mine of hijaz in the valley of Foro. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, then spent two months of Rabiul Akhir and Jama'adiul Ula there and then returned to Medina. And during this time, a battle did not take place. Hazrat Ahmed Sahib, <inaudible> <inaudible> mentions the details of the Battle of Bahran in the following words: <inaudible> "And much time had not passed since the Ghazwa of Zee Amr, that is to say, in late Rabiul Awal 3 Hijri. The Holy Prophet, Peace Be Upon Him, received the horrific news that the Banu Sulaim were once again regrouping in a very large number at Bahran, with the intention of launching a sudden attack upon Medina, and that a party of the Quraysh was also accompanying them." With no other choice, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him set out from Medina once again with a group of companions. However, as was their habit, these wild beasts of Arabia, who lay in ambush to strike their prey suddenly and in a state of inattention, dispersed upon receiving news of the imminent arrival of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And after a stay of a few days, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, returned. The fact that the Banu Sulaim and Banu Ghatfan would gather again and again with the intention of launching a sudden attack upon Medina clearly demonstrated that these barbaric and warlike tribes of the Arabian desert were very deadly enemies of Islam. Day and night they would remain preoccupied in order to find some opportunity by which the Muslims would be utterly destroyed. Just attempt to visualize the vulnerable state of the Muslims at the time as to how their days were passing in that era. On the one hand, there were the Quraysh of Mecca, who had become blinded due to their enmity of Islam and due to their spirit of revenge for the Battle of Badr. Clinging to the drapes of the Kaaba, they took vows that they would not rest until the Muslims had been completely annihilated. And on the other hand, were these bloodthirsty wild beasts of the Arabian Desert who were restless to drink the blood of the Muslims due to their being incited by the Quraysh and their own animosity towards Islam. As such, Take note of how many times within the course of a few months after Badr, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was compelled to travel personally in order to safeguard himself from the deadly motives of the barbaric tribes of Arabia. As Sir William Muir has described, these were days of scorching heat as well. And not to mention, this heat was of the Arabian desert. If it were not for the special succor of God, and if the vigilance of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, had not kept the Muslims constantly watchful and alert. And if the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, had not employed strategies to scatter the force of the enemy prior to their launching a sudden attack at night, then the Muslims would have surely been destroyed and ruined in those days. And these were only external threats. As far as internal threats were concerned, they were no less either. Even in Medina itself, there existed a group known as the hypocrites who lived among the Muslims as their own, and it would definitely be no exaggeration to refer to them as snakes in the grass. In addition to them, were the treacherous and habitual conspirators in the form of the Jewish people, whose enmity had reached the furthest limits in his depth and breadth. Goodness gracious, what a time of adversity this was for the Muslims! Let us hear it in their own words, Ubay bin Kab, a renowned companion, relates that in that era the state of the companions was such that they would not even put off their arms at night and during the day they would walk around armed in case of a sudden attack. And they would say to one another that let us see if we live till such a time when we might be able to sleep in peace and security at night without any fear except for the fear of God. What difficulty and helplessness, and what a longing for a life of peace and security is hidden in these words. Every just individual can measure this for himself. And these circumstances are present in some places even today, especially in Palestine at present. There was also the expedition of Zaid bin Harsa, the details of which are as follows. The defeat of the Banu Sulaim, the exile of the Banu Ghatfan, the fleeing of Abu Sufyan during the Battle of Saviq, and the defeat of the Banu Salba and Banu Maharib during the Battle of Banu Ghatfan were all testaments to the growing military competence of Medina. And above all, the victory of the believers and the humiliating defeat of the idolaters in the Battle of Badr caused the enemies of Islam great economic challenges because the main trading route from Mecca to Syria passed through the west of Medina along the Sea of Amr. And this was the very route that the Muslims tried to intercept Abu Sufyan's trade caravan as well. The tribes in Medina's nearby vicinity had also formed alliances with the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And so, for these reasons, the idolaters of Mecca were not prepared to use this trade route. The obstacle the Muslims had placed before the Meccans' economic growth was a cause of great concern for them, and they abandoned the main route to Syria and searched for an alternative route. One day, Safwan bin Umayyah addressed the disbelievers and stated, Then Muhammad and his companions have made it difficult for us to live. They have prevented us from going to our central location for trade and I do not understand what we should do. The Muslims have not even indicated any intention of clearing from the coastal area and most of the tribes living by the coast have also formed treaties with them and have formed pacts with them. And so, how will we travel and what will we do? If we remain here in Mecca, we will consume our resources and all that we possess. And after this, we will have nothing to live on. These were the goods we would take in the summer to Syria and in the winter to Abyssinia for trade. And so, what will happen now? Everyone became worried upon hearing Safwan bin Umayyah's words. Aswad bin Mutalib then suggested that instead of taking the route by the coastline, they could go to Syria by travelling through Iraq. Sufman replied that he had no knowledge of such a route. Upon this, Abu Zamma then said But I will tell you about a guide who is well acquainted with this route and said that this guide is Furat bin Hayan Ijli. He stated that he frequently uses this route and is well acquainted with the journey. Safwan swore by Allah and stated that outstanding, this is exactly what I desired. Furat was summoned and when he arrived Safwan said that I would like to take a trade caravan to Syria but Muhammad has caused us great worry because our trade caravans passed by them very closely. He stated that I wish to go to Syria now through Iraq. Upon this, Furad replied that I will guide you on a route through Iraq which the companions of Muhammad will never discover. He stated that this is a desolate and deserted route. Safwan stated that this is what I prefer. The fact that it is desolate is not of a great concern because it is winter and we will not require as much water on our journey and we can endure this much. In any case, they commenced their preparations for the journey. Following this, Safwan bin Umayyah informed everyone about the preparations for the caravan and took his belongings. He also took dishes made of silver, silver nuggets and other goods along with him. And Abu Zammah also entrusted Safwan with 300 mezcals of gold and silver nuggets so that he could make purchases for him. One miscal is approximately 4.5 grams, or exactly 4.37 grams. Nevertheless, this was a very large sum of money. According to another narration, Safwan set out with goods comprising silver dishes and silver nuggets, equivalent to 30,000 dirhams. Abu Sufyan bin Harb also took a large amount of silver with him and others from among the Quraysh also gave their wealth to the members of the caravan for their purchases. Apart from Safwan and Abu Sufyan, many others such as Abdullah bin Abi Rabia and Huwaiti bin Abdul Uzza joined the trade caravan with them. Thus, under the direction of Furat bin Hayyan, the caravan of the Quraysh departed for trade towards Syria on a route through Iraq. Then, with regards to the date of this particular expedition and the other names it is known by, it is mentioned that this expedition took place in Jamadul akhira in 3 Hijri. This expedition is also known as Sariya Karada, and it is said that Karada was a water well found in the Najd area. The Quraysh were very careful with regards to the route they took, as mentioned earlier. And they tried their utmost for this news not to spread to Medina, otherwise, it would have been impossible to use this route as well. However, the will of Allah had decreed for something else, and this news could not be kept a secret by the people of Makkah. Noem bin Mas'ud Ashjay learnt of this plan, and it was around the same time that he had to come to Medina to see to a particular task. At the time, he was irreligious and a polytheist. In Medina, he stayed with one of the chieftains of the Banu Nazir, Kinana bin Abi Huqaiq, and he gave him alcohol to drink. During this time, a companion by the name Salid bin Numan bin Aslam frequently visited the Banu Nazir tribe, and so Salid reached the gathering in which Noem and Kinana bin Abi Huqaiq were seated. Noem was completely drunk, and owing to his intoxication, he was unable to stop himself from disclosing the plan. He told them everything about the plan of the trade route which would pass through Iraq under the supervision of Safwan bin Umayyah. Upon hearing this, Salid bin Numan left and informed the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, about the entire plan. And so, as soon as the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him learnt of this, he immediately made preparations. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, dispatched a contingent of a hundred horsemen under the command of Hazard bin Harsa. And this was the first time Hazard bin Harsa was appointed as the Commander-in-Chief of the Muslim Army, and he succeeded in this expedition. In one narration it is mentioned that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, sent Hazard bin Harsa with a hundred horsemen. They went and intercepted the trade caravan. And the leaders of the convoy ran and took shelter in the jungle and the companions took one or two men as prisoners and brought the spoils back to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, split it in five parts and one Khums, i.e. one-fifth of the spoils of war reserved for Allah and His Messenger, peace be upon him, was equivalent of 20,000 dirhams. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, distributed the remaining wealth amongst the people who took part in the expedition. In another narration, it is mentioned that Hazrat Zayd covered the distance swiftly and the caravan of the Quraysh were completely heedless of them. They were about to stop at a spring named Karada when the Muslim army reached them, and they launched an attack all of a sudden and overpowered them. Safwan bin Umayyah and the other people with him had no option but to flee. The Muslims captured Furat bin Hayyan, who was the guide of the caravan, along with two other men, and they acquired large quantities of utensils and silver, which was worth approximately 100,000 dirhams. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, took out Khums, i.e. one-fifth, and then distributed the remaining spoils between the army. The guide of the Quraysh, Furat bin Hayyan, accepted Islam at the hands of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. The remaining details of these accounts will be mentioned in the future, God willing. And the reason for stopping these caravans was that they would use these trading goods to wage war against the Muslims. It is similar to the sanctions that are levied today. However, they, are the worldly powers, do so to achieve their vested interests and in fact at times they are completely wrong. For example, the USA has imposed sanctions on Uganda because their parliament passed a law against LGBT. Although they do not mention the reason, but this is the true reality. And so this is the condition of these people, How can they ever raise an allegation against Islam? Nonetheless, I will mention these matters in the future, God willing. I would like to remind you once again to continue praying for the people of Palestine who are being oppressed. Now, at least some non-Muslims and certain politicians, though timidly, have started speaking out against this injustice. In fact, Even some Jewish people are separating themselves from these actions and have called upon the Israeli government saying that they are defaming them. Hence, some voices here and there are being raised even by the non-Muslims. Now it is being said that there will be a daily pause in the fighting for four hours in order for aid to reach the people of Palestine. However, Allah the Almighty knows best to the degree to which this will be implemented. And Allah knows how much injustice and bombardment will take place against the Palestinians for the remaining 20 hours. Majority of the major governments and politicians are not giving any importance to the lives of the Palestinians. They have their own interests. However, these people should remember that Allah the Almighty gives respite only for a certain time. Furthermore, this is not the only life to be lived, there is also the life in the hereafter. They think that if they attain all the benefits of this world, they will have achieved everything. They can be seized in this world as well and will be seized in the hereafter as well. In any case, we must focus on prayers. May Allah the Almighty help the Palestinians who are being oppressed and save them from these injustices. Now I will also lead some funeral prayers in absentia after the prayers. The first funeral prayer is for Mansura Basma Sahib, wife of Hamidur Rahman Khan Sahib. She passed away recently. Inna lillahi wa inna ilaihi rajiun. Verily to Allah we belong and to Him shall we return. She was the paternal granddaughter of Nawab Abdullah Khan Sahib and Hazrat Saib Zadi Amatul Hafiz Sahib. She was the maternal granddaughter of Hazrat Saib Zada Mirza Sharif ahmed Sahib and Abu Zayna Begum sahib. And she was the daughter of Mia Bas Khan Sahib and Amatul Bari Begum Sahiba. By the grace of Allah the Almighty, she was a musya and a very pious lady. Whilst announcing her nikah, Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III, Rahimahullah delivered a sermon which contained various advice and so I will read a part of that sermon here. Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III, Rahimahullah stated, With this nikah, certain responsibilities will be placed on both the girl and boy which they previously did not have. Firstly, there are responsibilities which they have towards each other. The husband has certain responsibilities towards his wife and likewise the wife has certain responsibilities towards her husband. Secondly, there are certain other responsibilities which they have to fulfil together which are in relation to their children. With regards to the responsibilities related to the children, there are certain responsibilities which are divided between the two. For example, the mother provides milk for the child, however the father cannot do this. The father, however, looks after the child whilst outdoors so that the child does not pick up any immoral habits, and the mother's responsibilities are primarily related to the affairs within the home. In any case, if both parents fulfil their responsibilities, then our children can be safeguarded from many ills. Then Hazur stated that the verses of the Holy Qur'an which we recite on this occasion draw our attention towards these new set of responsibilities. Firstly, Allah Almighty states, that is, O ye people, fear your Lord. This verse mentions to fear God, and although the Qur'an speaks of taqwa, i.e. fear of God in various contexts, However, in this particular verse of the Holy Qur'an, which is recited on the occasion of the Nikah, it speaks about fearing the Lord. This means that just as Allah the Almighty is the provider and gradually nurtures everything, including them, they too will now be given a new set of responsibilities of providing and nurturing which can only be fulfilled if they truly fear their Lord, who is Allah. Secondly, this bond is very fragile and many misunderstandings can develop due to negligence. Therefore, in order to be safeguarded from this, we have been instructed, that is, and say the right word. This means that it is not enough to just speak the truth, but to speak in a manner which is straightforward and unambiguous. If one adopts this habit, then this will remove any misunderstandings or conflicts. Thirdly, it states, that is, and let every soul look to what it sends forth for the morrow. This means that their Elders provided them with an upbringing for their future. And now they too have to provide their children with a proper upbringing, whilst keeping their future in mind. The future of each generation which is being mentioned in relation to parents providing an upbringing for their children is independent and different. This is not relating to just one single future. This is because the world we live in and the society around us is constantly evolving. The current era has completely changed the signs of the great revolution, which we were always given glad tidings of, can now be seen on the horizon. Thus, the responsibilities of a father today in this era are different to the ones that we had. In fact, they have to fulfil their responsibilities towards their children with much greater care and with a much wider scope, so that the future generations can be ready to shoulder the great weight of the responsibilities that are going to be placed on the Jamaat which relate to the training of the entire world. Hazur then stated, that may Allah the Almighty enable us to understand this and act upon it. Hazrat Hazarat Khalifatul Masih III, Rahimahullah, then stated, I am standing here to announce the nikah of a young girl who is the paternal granddaughter of our paternal uncle Nawab Abdullah Khan Sahib and our paternal aunt Hamadul Hafiz Begum Sahib." Through this marriage, the fourth generation of the promised Messiah will begin. She is the maternal granddaughter of Hazrat Mirza Sharif Ahmad Said and so she is related to the promised Messiah in two ways. Hence, the responsibilities are twofold and if the responsibilities are twofold, then the warning is also twofold just as the glad tidings are twofold for us. Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III then mentioned to the elders as well as the children of the family of the Promised Messiah that they should understand their responsibilities because if they fail to fulfil their twofold responsibilities then they will have to face a twofold warning as well. May Allah the Almighty enable the elders and the children of the family of the Promised Messiah to understand this. Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III then stated whenever I announce a nikah in which the boy and the girl are related to the promised Messiah, then I also become concerned and become more focused on praying that Allah the Almighty enables them to recognize their status. When it comes to being helpers, they are different from others and therefore they should live their lives in this world as even greater servants of faith. In any case, these were his words of guidance and so I have mentioned them. Regarding her personal life, respected Basma Mansura Saiba's daughter Rabia writes, She introduced us to Allah the Almighty when we were young and she would stress that we pray for our good fortune. And she would often say the pray that Allah the Almighty causes you to come into contact with good people. We did not understand what this prayer meant when we were little, but came to understand it as we grew older. She further says, my mother was very loving towards people. She would sacrifice her own sentiments in order to take care of others. And this indeed was true. It may have appeared to people as if she spent on herself, but that is not the case. In fact, she herself would sacrifice and instead took care of others. For example, she would come to London for the jalsa and she would take gifts back for the poor and would not get anything for herself. She also raised another girl tended to her good moral training, and then also had her married. In addition to her, there are many other girls who she helped get married. People would often visit her home. She would also send food to the neighbours, and it was as if a sort of communal kitchen had been opened. This was to the extent that the man who swept the street outside would come to her when it was time to eat and would have a meal. She had also set a stipend for many people and if ever she was advised to save something for herself, she would say I have never thought about tomorrow, for Allah the Almighty is the master of my financial needs. She had a great deal of honour and respect for life devotees and she would take care of her relatives who were life devotees and would keep in touch with them as well. She says she would also say to us that life devotees make sacrifices and so they should be taken care of. She did justice to all of her relations in an excellent manner. She would always say that she never thought about how others have treated her. She further says that if ever she made a mistake or if ever she did wrong to someone, she would always be the first to seek an apology. And if ever she scolded a worker, she would seek apology from them too, and then she would give them a reward. Her son-in-law, Mirza Taqiyuddin, says that she did Vasiyat at a very young age. I also checked the Vasiyyat form and I was astonished to see that she had done Vasiyat around the age of 14. He further says that she recounted a dream she had when she was a child, She saw in a dream that she was firmly holding onto Allah's foot and crying profusely. She said that when she woke up she was in fact crying and she would say that till now Allah the Almighty has taken care of everything for me. One of her acquaintances here, Ruhi Shah Saiba, says that if she befriended someone, then she honored that friendship. She was a very grateful person and she was content with the will of Allah the Almighty and was always grateful to Him for His blessings. She was kind to others and then she would express a great deal of gratitude to the extent that the other person would become embarrassed. Her sister-in-law Tahira Farooq Saiba, says, Rather than considering me a sister-in-law, she treated me like a friend and a sister. She loved selflessly and was a stand-up individual. She knew how to honour her relations and she preferred for others exactly that which she preferred for herself and she never harboured any negative feelings in her heart. She was clear and straightforward in what she said. She was regular in offering prayers, keeping fasts, reciting the Holy Quran and she was firmly and deeply attached with Khilafat. She would happily take on any Jamaat work that was entrusted to her. May Allah the Almighty grant her His forgiveness and mercy and enable her children to carry on her good deeds. May he grant her husband and children patience and steadfastness. The second funeral is of Chaudhry Rashid Ahmed Sahib, former Deputy registrar at the University of Agriculture in Faisalabad. He had currently been residing in the United States. He also passed away recently. By the grace of Allah the Almighty, he was also a Musi. His son, Rafiq Tahir Sahib, is serving the Jamaat in Los Angeles. He says that at first came into their family through the deceased's older brother Chaudhry Barkat Ali Sahib, after which his father and the rest of his family had the honour of pledging allegiance. He further says that during the disturbances of 1974, His home was within the university area among the university quarters and a mob attacked him and looted his home, setting fire to everything he had. In any case, he left from there at the time and returned to the university two to three months later when the conditions had improved. The Vice-Chancellor said that the owner of the crescent mill had said that I wish to cover your losses, so tell me the extent of the damage. Upon this, Jodhri Rashid Sahib raised his finger towards the sky and he said, I will certainly not take help from anyone, for I am bearing this loss in the way of Allah the Almighty. I suffered this loss for His sake, and Allah the Almighty Himself will cover the losses. And Allah the Almighty then bestowed such blessings upon him that within a short span of time he was able to make up for the loss he endured. He had a relationship of great love and obedience with Khilafat and he strove to fulfil instructions to the letter. He was so trustworthy that he was a member of the University Grant Commission and this indeed is a great honour. Once there was a meeting and he had been given money to cover the expenses of the train ticket to attend the meeting. On the way back, some of his family members said that they wished to accompany him and so he changed his ticket to second class in order to sit with his relatives and return the remaining amount to the government. Once he went to the University Grant Commission Chairman's office and he sent his card in in order to meet him. The director came out and said to someone who was sitting outside that this is the person whose trustworthiness I was telling you about as to how trustworthy he is. Then he immediately took this opportunity to introduce the Jamaat saying that he was an Ahmadi and his trustworthiness was owing to him being an Ahmadi. Hence, this is a lesson for Ahmadis that they should always fulfil their duties faithfully and they should never get caught up in any sort of financial greed. He was at the forefront of offering financial contributions and financial sacrifices and aside from his parents and siblings he would regularly make contributions for Tariqa Jadid and Waqfa Jadeed on behalf of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him and the Promised Messiah He was a very loving person and he treated all the students at the university like his children and brothers. He says that we would all gather and offer one prayer in a day at his home, especially the Maghrib prayer. He would always meet others with a smile on his face. He was a very content person. May Allah the Almighty grant him his forgiveness and mercy and enable his children to carry on his good deeds.
0: Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah nahmadu wa nastainu wa nastaghfiruhu wa nomenu bihi wa من wa min مَن يَضِلَّ اللَّهَ فَلَا مُضِلَّ لَهُ وَمَن يُضِلُّ فَلَا هَذِي لَهُ وَلَا اللَّهُ إلَّا اللَّهُ مُحَمَّدًا اللَّهِ Idle, well, the son, way to Father, you
1: one اللَّهِ the